uh, in this session, uh, we'll first set out to organize some of the examples we saw last time of word formation, which we more or less left in disarray. Tonight, we'll try to organize them a bit. I'll try to get you to organize them a bit into a coherent framework. After that, we'll look at allomorphy, which is probably a new word to you, something that maybe has not concerned you in the past, and we'll try to get you concerned about it. <clears throat> and uh, it, that will lead us to look at some irregular but frequent changes in real English words. And then finally, we'll take a quick look at uh, phonetics to uh, provide us with some terminology that we can use to describe allomorphy, and more generally to, to understand the, uh, the different ways in which words that are related to one another can still look different from one another. So, last time, we considered a number of different kinds of word formation, but we never got around to organizing the examples into any kind of a framework. So tonight, let's start by developing uh, a very simple and I think sensible framework by considering what it takes to form a new word from an existing word or word element. So what are, what are the possibilities? You've, you've got an existing word and you'd like to form a new one um, using that existing word as kind of a basis. What can you do? Well, you can add stuff to it. So you take an existing word or just a, a word element, a root or, or something, and add something to it, sometimes you get a new word. All right, that's one way to form words. Another way to form words is, is to add nothing to an existing word or word element. Don't, don't change anything. A third way would be to subtract material from the, the word that you're using as a basis. And, uh, and if you subtract material in the right way, uh, you may get uh, a new word. The, uh, <laughs> I see that, yes, the, the numbering is, is wrong. Uh, a fourth way that you can do is to uh, take an existing word, add some stuff to it, subtract some other stuff, and you'll get uh, a new word. And the final way, uh, which should be numbered number five, is out of zero, out of nothing, to produce a new word, to literally create a new word from scratch. So those are pretty much the, the simple logical possibilities. Okay, well, uh, why don't you tell me what, uh, uh, what, what kind of process affixation is? The first one. So you're taking... You're taking stuff and you're adding stuff to it. Uh, basically, you're taking a root and you're adding affixes, prefixes and suffixes to it. Compounding, if it has to fit into one of these five categories on the right, where would you put count compounding? Okay, also the first. You're taking a word and you're adding another word to it and you're forming a new word from that. <clears throat> Conversion, so changing a noun to a verb or to an adjective, something like that. 
The second one, you're adding zero to a noun and you're making it into a verb. Uh, anybody disagree? Just, yes, Jennifer? Also being one as well. I mean, you have an example of out and outed. Okay, good. Well, suppose, suppose we say that once we change something to a new part of speech, then once it becomes that part of speech, it's subject to the normal affixation that that part of speech is subject to. Okay, so if, we, so if we break outing down into two processes, one is making, making out into a verb, then the rest of it follows. Once it's a verb, I know that it's going to take a participial form, ing, a past tense, ed, and so on, okay? So, so outing, outing involves affixation definitely, affixing ing to out, but to form out the verb from out the, what is it, adverb? Preposition? Uh, all right, that, that process, that part of the process, is, is that conversion part of the process is really uh, number two, no change. All right? Uh, clipping. So clipping is like, all right, so that's subtracting material, so making uh, an abbreviated form of a word. Blending. Okay, so you're adding and subtracting. And uh, uh, on the next slide, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, uh, there'll, there'll be uh, some, uh, an example. And then finally, onomatopoeia, so imitating sounds that things make. Or sound symbolism, uh, sounds having inherent meanings. So um, um, there have been um, studies, in, in, in fact, I, uh, uh, I worked on one such study that shows that if you, um, if you have a, a vowel that is made with the mouth relatively closed, like i, the, the word that, you, that contains that vowel will tend to sound lighter and thinner and smaller than a, the, the comparable word containing a vowel like ah that has your mouth wide open, all right? That's, that, that's an instance of sound symbolism. Uh, so those kinds, those kinds of process are things where you're kind of creating things from scratch. You're not using another word as a basis or another word element as a basis for forming a new word. You're rather putting together sounds, sounds that you find in nature or sounds that, that maybe cor correspond to uh, 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 sounds where a certain meaning uh, 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 is the result of making that sound. Which one was acronyms? Okay, and acronyms we, we skipped. Tell me, tell me about uh, acronyms. Well, I thought it was subtracting material. Yeah, yeah. Anybody disagree with that? Good. Okay, thanks for catching acronyms. Could it also be, I mean, as well as subtracting, could it also be making up a new word? Oh, okay, so making it out of nothing. Well, huh? taking, you know, you take multiple um, words and you just take yeah. out the obvious oh, middle. Oh, actually, so like compound, compound. So if you have uh, CIA, okay, right. an acronym. Okay, you're, 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 starting, you're starting with a compound, Central Intelligence Agency, right. and now you're subtracting everything but the first, the first letter. So you start, you, you, I, I guess you're starting with a, with a word. I think you're saying you're making it up. No, I'm saying that you're, you're like, because um, sometimes the acronyms like radar can be made into a new 
like radar, good. nobody thinks of that as an acronym anymore. Good. But good. that's so was that making up a whole new word? Is that also good. the fifth one? Yeah, I, I, I would say that that what results from the process of radar, which what what, what does it mean? Radio detection and I can't remember. <laughs> You're right. We've we've forgotten where it comes from. All right. Uh, <clears throat> What, what that is is it's, take, it's taking uh, uh, it's taking a bunch of letters, and yeah, I see. It's take, but see, the, the letters the letters are in an expression that's meaningful, right. all right. And so it's subtracting everything but the first letter from each word in the expression. And so I mean, you can look at it if you want as making it from nothing. But the fact is that you're making it from make, making the acronym up from this whole long expression, and the process that you're going through is you're subtracting everything in the expression except the first letters. All right. So, but yeah, it's, th th this isn't so much um, uh, an exercise to be right or wrong about as it is a way of, uh, of helping us to deal with the fact that there are many different kinds of word formation. So here, here, here's kind of just a sim simple way of looking at word formation. Says, well, you either add something or you subtract something or you, you do nothing or, or something like that. Yeah? Quick question. It, it, you sort of, I think you, you're sort of saying you create a new word. Yeah. Right. It's sort of separate from its origin. It takes on a life of its own. Yeah. And how is that or what would you call the process that makes something like Kleenex? Great. Which is actually a brand name become generic. Uh, uh, that's a, a very good example. Tell tell me uh, tell me what happened. Uh, tell me where Kleenex came from, or where, where do you think Kleenex? So the, 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 uh, the people invented this wonderful, convenient tissue. That paper, it's cheap. You can throw it away, and and so on. And now they had to give it a name that would. Uh, inspire us to be interested in it so so much so that we would actually pur purchase it. Uh, so, what process do you think they went through in order to? Smart ad people started with Queen, and they got a bunch of guys in the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so, uh, looking at what they came up with, they said, "All right." What, uh, one of the things that we're going to promote as an advantage of this new product is that it's clean. Where clean means that you don't carry it around in your back pocket forever. Uh, you don't, you don't, probably don't use it twice. Okay, so every time you sneeze, you use a new one. All right, they, they say, okay, well, we're going to start with the concept clean. All right, and now how can uh, so how can we make that into a brand name? Well, yeah, change the spelling. Okay, so make it more proprietary. Make it, make it uh, do something to it that English doesn't already do so that we can own this, this thing. Uh, put a suffix on X. X, why, what, where do you think, why do you think X was chosen rather than cleaner? What, uh, what's the connection? Clean out. Okay, so clean, clean out, cleaning things out. So X may mean out. Um, X could be just, it's, it's very distinctive. If, if the choices, what are the choices of suffix? Okay, you could have cleany, 
right? Like weenie. <laughs> uh, 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 you can have cleaner, like uh, Swiffer. Uh, uh, I was part of the group that made up the name Swiffer, in fact. I consult for a naming company in Sausalito called Lexicon Branding. They came up with Swiffer. Okay, the ER there. Yeah, why? So what's better, what's better about Kleenex than cleaner? Yeah, it's already a word, and so it wouldn't be proprietary. If you put EX, that's not a typical way that we make up words, and yet it sounds, uh, it, it sounds enough like English for us to accept it as, you know, it's not, it's not totally foreign. These are the kinds of things so, uh, that, that went into making up the, the, the brand Kleenex. Um, so we, we saw uh, examples of affixation, compounding, for compound, I gave my favorite compound in English, chipmunk. Um, if, uh, if you speak a foreign language, translate chipmunk into that language and tell me how many words it takes. As an, ex as an exercise for next week, uh, the, 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 one of the beauties of English and this compounding process that we inherited from Germanic is it gives us license to take any two words and put them together. They don't have to have a particular specific relation to one another in order to do this. When I combine them, they will, they will interact with one another and they will, they will make up their own idiosyncratic relationship. So I would think of the word strip. Strip means many different things. The strip of paper, strip tees, all kinds of strips around. Think of mall. All right, we see malls. Okay, when you think of a mall, you think maybe Stanford Shopping Mall or something like that. The, uh, the beauty to me of the expression strip mall is that it, uh, it captures in two syllables this very common American phenomenon that is uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, regarded by some people as, as a blight, but they're all over the place. It's just a really... Uh, a really a very simple way of expressing a rather complicated uh, architectural concept. Um, conversion we saw, uh, compounding again, and he's, he's coming back. Clipping, uh, so uh, the ex example of clipping here is to dis, which started, started showing up, oh, I don't know, what, 10, 15 years ago for disrespect. Um, uh, uh, acronyms. Blending, okay, here's, so, with, uh, last time we talked about Cosmeceutical and Gallerina, and uh, I, I, uh, I, I thought I'd, I'd just illustrate in a, in a slide how, the, uh, how these, these two blends involve addition and subtraction. So uh, it, what, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're taking a word, we're adding another word to it, but uh, we're also subtract, subtracting parts of the initial word and the word that we're, we're adding in both, uh, in both cases. And then finally, words coming from nothing. This really, is, uh, uh, this really is the category that requires the most attention. Um, in, in looking for words formed from nothing, for e examples to present to you, I learned quite a bit about how we form words for nothing. The first thing I learned is that it's very difficult. 
to do. I, uh, I, uh, 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 with this question, as with most questions that I have about words, the first place I turned to was the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. I, um, I checked the OED for words whose definition contained coined word. And I found 413 entries that were labeled coined. But most of them were of, this, of the form that you see on this slide. Autogenic, astronautics, metapsychology, photogenic. Where the word isn't made, it's coined, that is someone made it up, but they didn't make it up from nothing. Okay, so coin, coin doesn't mean just made up from, from scratch. Typically, these words were made up by a process that in the text we call analogy. So we've got, we've got a, a, a word aeronautics already, and we've got astronaut already, and so the existence of those two words makes it very natural to invent a word like astronautics. With metapsychology, well, we've got metaphysics. Okay, psychology and physics are both subjects that you, that you can take in school. If, if, if we have metaphysics, why not metapsychology? Metalinguistics, metabiology, why not? Okay, whatever. Right. So most of the coined words in the OED didn't satisfy the requirement of being examples for, uh, for, for this exercise. So I looked further and I found blimp, which uh, was first used in 1918 according to the OED. It uh, appeared in the Illustrated London News and the OED called it onomatopoetic. Now help me understand I can tell by the quizzical expressions on your face that, that, uh, that you're wondering as much as I am about what, what, what is being imitated with, with blimp. But let's, uh, let's see if we can. Let, so the word blimp has, as far as we know, no etymology. There is no word in Latin blimpus, <laughs> OK? that it was derived from or that we borrowed. Um, there's no Colonel von Blimp who, uh, who developed the, or piloted the first Blimp and so it was named after, okay. We don't know where it came from. And for, uh, for words like this, the OED, uh, there's really quite a number in the English language. The OED just says uh, it's of uncertain origin. But here it ventured to say maybe it's onomatopoetic. And so uh, I couldn't make sense of that. I thought I'd come, come, uh, come and ask you, can you picture anything that blimp sounds like? Blimp. <laughs> OK. This, uh, yeah, OK. Interesting, big, one of the most common words in the English language. We don't know the origin of. We know when it started being used around uh, 1300. We know where in England it started being used. It was in the part of England that uh, many, many centuries earlier had been inhabited by the Vikings. But, and, so, and, and, and because it was in that part of England, there's some speculation that it's a survival from some old Norse word, some old Viking word. But we haven't, haven't really found the word that it's a survival of. And so we're really not sure about that. But the word really just kind of 
uh, appeared in the language. Uh, humongous is a different kind of coined word because there we can get a feeling for the elements that went into it. So this, this probably wasn't made literally out of nothing. It was made out of, what, what do you think? Let's have some, some guess. What do, what do you get in humongous? Huge is good. Human, big, enormous. So the, the, uh, the O-U-S is from something like enormous, uh, tremendous. Uh, where's the G? Uh, uh, it's hard. It's uh, 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 the G or the N-G. Monster. Yeah, I get like M-O-N could be monstrous. Okay. The, the G helps it to sound huge. Uh, maybe, maybe the G that's spelt in huge, do you think? I don't know. I, uh, uh, where the G comes from is a mystery. The last example I found, uh, again, is very different. The country, Burkina Faso in West Africa, uh, used to be called Upper Volta. It got a new president in 1983, and one of the first things he did, it became official in 1984, was to rename his, company, uh, his country. The country, Upper Volta, it was it actually called Haute Volta in, in French. It had been named by the French. An African country had been named by the French. And so as part of asserting uh, independence, which happened in Burkina uh, just after 1960, uh, 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 was to find uh, an indigenous name for the place that, that wasn't French. Um, in, in, in this country, there are two main ethnic groups, the, um, the Moré and the Jula. And so what the, the, the president of the country did is, and, and his team did is, they took a uh, Moré word, Burkina, added a Jula word, uh, Faso. Those, these two languages have nothing to do with one another, but he just combined those two words into uh, a name for the country, and then and it stuck. So that's, that's kind of another way to make up a new, new word. We, we could call that compounding, but I thought I'd include it here just because uh, it, 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 it shows another example of how we can come up with a new name for something without... Uh, uh, without uh, 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 relying on uh, just cha changing something that already exists. In, uh, uh, in chapter three, we, t we talk about analogy. And what we say is that wh whichever of the word formation types that we deal with, we find that analogy often plays some kind of role. That is, in forming new words, we show that we're very aware of patterns in existing words. So something like humongous, uh, we're trying, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're, we're building it from things that we find in existing words. With, uh, uh, I was uh, interested in the word regifting, which came in in 1995, although it still is not in the Oxford English Dictionary. So even, even with the revised, Oxford English Dictionary that has added thousands of new words, regifting didn't make it, even though I think all of you probably recognize that that's maybe because you all watched Seinfeld, I don't, I don't know. But apparently, really, it really originated, as far as people can document, that, that's the first uh, occurrence it was on that show. 
when Elaine uh, says he recycled this gift, he's a regifter. All right. I was interested in this for a couple of reasons. Gift is a noun, and so it doesn't normally occur before ing. Verbs occur before ing. And in fact, we, we, but we don't even, we, it, it's interesting for, interesting for another reason. We don't normally use gift as a verb. So I don't say, um, I spent a lot of money this year gifting people. All right? So, uh, so gift really isn't a verb, and, and yet regifting exists as a regifting follows all the rules that a verb would. You can put re in front of it, you can put uh, ing after it. And so because this is, uh, this form is unusual, it doesn't go by the normal rules. A noun is behaving like a verb in, in a way that even in English nouns don't normally do. I, I looked for uh, what what pattern regifting could have been based on? And uh, the, the, the closest thing I could come to an answer was, well, uh, in 1984, and this, this is in, um, in the Oxford English Dictionary, we started to hear repurposing, which is the, the same kind of anomaly. That is, purpose starts as a verb. We don't use purpose before ing without re. So purposing, right? uh, I'm having trouble purposing this lecture. Okay, I'm trying. I'm having trouble purposing the assignment you handed in. Just all right, but but repurposing we 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 we're seeing with increasing frequency in in writing. All right, so uh, <coughs> um, this this. This word repurposing could serve as a mo mo model for regifting. All right, so we moved our question about 1995 back to 1984, and now we have to ask the same question. In 1984, what caused it? How did someone get away with saying repurposing and it actually caught on? What were they thinking? What were they basing this on? And so again, we have to look for an analog in the language for repurposing. Um, I can't say that I have a definitive answer, but here's, here's what I suspect. I suspect that whoever used repurposing the first time or whoever uh, started to hear this word and incorporated it into, their, into la their language was drawing on some existing word that looked like it could be analyzed the way repurposing definitely is. That is, re plus noun plus ing. Now there are lots of words in English that look like they could be analyzed re plus noun plus ing because English has lots of nouns that look like verbs and lots of verbs that look like nouns. So if we had something like recycling, okay, cycle is a noun, cycle is a verb. When cycle came into the language, it was probably a noun, and yet we made it a verb. I cycled through all of the exercises, something like that. Once it became a verb, it was legitimate to put re in front of it, so recycle. 
This happened around in the 1930s. Again, if you check back in the OED. And again, once it's a verb, you can put ing after it. So someone, uh, someone who recognized recycling and uh, other, other words of this sort as English might have used that incorrectly as an analog for repurposing because they misconstrued the cycle, which really, uh, really was in this form a verb. They misconstrued it as a noun. And then that formed their model for repurposing and so on. At any rate, um, analogy is, uh, uh, is something that we draw on uh, a lot in, in forming words. Uh, when uh, going back to metapsychology that was in a slide just a few moments ago, uh, we talked about how natural it is to look at that as just formed on the analog of, of uh, metaphysics. Mm. All right. One, uh, one more thing about word formation. Uh, the question came up, and uh, I actually got an email uh, today from one of you saying, well, now, what's the difference between morpheme and morph? I, th I think that we need to uh, describe this a little, uh, a little bit. <clears throat> take, take one of the roots from chapter four that we're going to give you a quiz on uh, today. Um, <clears throat> frag. It occurs in the form frag, in fragile and fragment. It occurs with an N before the G, in frangible, refrangent. And it occurs with an N before G, and the A changed to I in, in fringe. So all of these words have the same root. The root means break. But the root has different forms depending on what's next to the root in, in these words, all right? So uh, if, if, if all of that is true, if you accept all of that, then, um, uh, then it makes it easy to describe the difference between morpheme and morph. The things that I've, uh, you don't quite see how, how bold they are, but there's a frag, frag, frang, frang, and fring. Are those separate morphemes, or are they separate morphs? Are we dealing with three separate morphemes here, or three separate morphs? I'm just asking you a question about the use of the term morph. They are morphs. So morph is a form, a, a, is a form that a morpheme can take. Uh, how many morphemes do the forms frag, frang, and fring represent? They're all realizations of one morpheme. So what we say is uh, the, the three forms that we had on the previous slide were morphs. All three morphs are allomorphs, so other forms, of a single morpheme, that means break. And the morpheme for break is sometimes identified as frag, because frag can be used as a base form and the other ones derived from it. All right? But, but uh, uh, a morpheme is really an, an analytic unit. A morph is something that we can physically hear. A morph is the, the unit that comprises all of the realizations of that morpheme, even though those realizations can, 
can change in different words. One other clarification that we have to make uh, is the following. The text cautions us against identifying etymology with morphology. To uh, appreciate the difference, let's do some morphological analysis on anti-disestablishmentarianism. So let's just take this apart into its constituent morphemes or word elements. All right, so let's just start from the left. Take off the first part. What do you have? Disestablishmentarianism. And in fact, that, 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 that reflects the history of the word. Uh, so uh, dis, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism was the position that was against disestablishmentarianism. OK, so we appreciate it. OK, disestablishmentarianism, let's, uh, let's take disestablishmentarianism and what, how was that formed? Well, well it, it, go ahead, yes. I was going to say establishment seems to be. Okay, so establishment is, establishment is, establishment is in there. Um, what, uh, if we start with disestablishmentarianism, that was the, um, that was the quality of being disestablishmentarian. All right, so we take the ism off. Disestablishmentarian. Let's analyze that. So, so, so disestablishmentarian had to do with um, uh, 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 it, it all had to do with established religion in in England. Okay, and it had to do with disestablishing the established religion. So, dis was a prefix. Aryan was a suffix. We take, them, we take them off, and we have establishment. Establishment is formed on establish, all right? So we're down to establish. Now, uh, we've, all, all that we've done there is morphological analysis. We've simply peeled off layers of prefixes and suffixes. And that leaves us with establish, and that the question is, are we finished at this point? Or... Does establishment, are there more layers of structure that have to be peeled off from establish? Yes or no? Yes. Let's say there is. Huh? Yeah, you would. You would break it down further. Isn't that what you said? Does establish have an internal structure? Yeah. Okay. Yes. What is it? Stable. Good. Okay. Great. Establish actually has a structure. I can't. I can't tell you that it's English structure because the, uh, uh, but, but we can argue about it certainly. What we get is E, which is not, it, 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 it's not the prefix E that we get in eject, emit, okay? So it's not, it's, it's not our familiar prefix. In fact, it's not a prefix that we use in, in, uh, in English in general. But there is a root stable that we can recognize. And definitely, you can see a relationship between establishment and something being stable. Right. Established means, in a sense, to make stable. And the ending, ISH, certainly we can identify with 
ish in other verbs, such as perish, admonish, embellish, astonish, and so on. Um, and yet it, it would be a little uh, difficult to, uh, to justify saying that ish, that this verb ending uh, ish is a productive verb ending in the language because we don't see it, uh, we don't see it applying across the board to adjectives. So stable is one of the few, uh, few cases where we can really see the, uh, uh, what ish is uh, attached onto. Um, why is it E? It's E because it was E in French. All right. So we took, uh, we borrowed the word established from French. French got the, the word from Latin. And so at, uh, at, a, at a certain point when we're breaking words down, we'll get, we'll get to a point where we can still find internal structure, but we really look, because we're linguists or because we can check the etymology in the Oxford English Dictionary or other sources, we're really, uh, we can see structure, but it's not clear at all whether that structure is English or it's the structure of the language that we borrowed the word from, all right? And so uh, what, uh, what, what may be the case with established is that for speakers of English, that's regarded as, as a verb like perish, but, but uh, without, without, without us being sure what internal structure the, the word has. Um, now let's take, let's take the stable, and, and I'm asking the, the same question I asked before. Does stable have an internal structure? Emily is nodding her head, yes. Yes, it does. What, is, what do you see? I see able. Okay. Yeah. The B, and in fact, the BLE part of able is a suffix um, that that we find in able as well. What's the red? Uh, 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 I, uh, I said BLE uh, because of able here, in, and it's spelled in stable. It's not spelled here on the slide. But what's the STA in stable? It's a morphing from our, our list. It's the one for stand or stay, all right? Again, I don't think we're doing English morphology here. I think we're doing etymology. That, that's, that's, where, that's where the word stable came from. It came from uh, 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 a Latin root, S-T-A, that means to stand, and a suffix, meaning um, whatever that whatever that suffix means. Uh, 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 the, the, the point is that etymology concerns the, where, uh, where the, the word and its parts originated from. But at a certain point when you're doing morphology, when you're unraveling the structure of an English word, you come to a point where uh, uh, Going beyond that will take you into uh, uh, outside the realm of English morphology into the realm of French and Latin morphology. And I think I think with establish, 
our best, uh, our best bet is to just consider uh, uh, establishing in English, establishing in English um, an element all by itself. It has an analysis, but the analysis is an etymological one. Doesn't have the essence. Right. So uh, there, there uh, over over the centuries, there were many many changes. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, and yet, when uh, what happened <laughs> is that Latin had the s. French lost the s in many many places, and one of them is. Uh, 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 in, in here. Same thing, the, the word state, S-T-A-T-E, in French corresponds to etat, okay, with no, with no S. So, the, yeah, the, uh, in fact, that, that kind of observation helps us, helps us to see the difference between working with English word structure and working with the structure of French and Latin, the, the languages that uh, we borrowed some of these words from. So one, one last uh, aspect of, of word analysis and, uh, and then uh, let's take a, a, a break. Ah, okay, the BLE suffix means tending to. <clears throat> Consider repress and repress. So I repressed my urges, but I repressed my pants. Okay, yeah, look at the words in the left column, and for each one in the left column, you have a word in the right column. And help me understand what's going on here. Because so far, in chapter three, we told you, well, words are made of elements. We have roots, we have prefixes and suffixes. We have roots like press and scent and view. We have prefixes like re. And nothing in, in uh, what we said about word formation so far would lead me to expect that there are forms side by side like repress versus repress, or release to lease again versus release. So we need, we need to know one more thing about word formation in order to understand these different words, all right? We need to tell, we need to tell you something else. Help me understand what's going on here. Can we say that the prefix re goes onto two kinds of things in English? Onto two kinds of, onto two different kinds of forms. If it goes onto one kind of form, it gives us words like on the left, review, resent. If it goes onto another kind of form, it, it has a different meaning and a different pronunciation. Resent. Notice resent with the hyphen is not pronounced with the same uh, z sound as resent. All right. Pro is another one that works. So I propound an idea, but I'm propound anti-dollar. Okay. <laughs> uh, provoke versus pro-choice. Again, the the form of the prefix pro is the spelling is the same, but we say it differently in the two cases. So can, can we analyze what's going on in the, the left column versus right column? Can you help me analyze that by saying that the prefix on the left is going onto one kind of element, and the prefix on the right is going onto a different 
kind of element. The wife should be attaching to, um, I was going to say a noun, but it doesn't look like it. Well, use, use a more broader, uh, more broader term. There you go. Use a broader term than noun. A part of speech. How about a part of speech? A word. Uh, look, subtract re and pro from the examples on the right, and tell me if what's left is a real word, a full word in the language. Lease. Yes, I, uh, I read. I leased this. View. Sent. Pound. Choice. Okay? Those are all real words. They're not just morphemes. They're not just meaningful units. They're full words. They can be used. They take past tense endings and all that stuff and so Now, let's look at the, what, what, what happens when we subtract re from the examples on the left. Lease, view, zent. What's, give me some words that are parallel to the words on the left here. So something, give me, give me a word that's a verb like resent and that has the same uh, form uh, zent in it, but has a different prefix instead of re. Pre, present. How about con, consent? Okay, the S changes its pronunciation. Ascent. Say it again. Absent. 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 Okay, that doesn't have that doesn't have the root cent in it. What unites present, consent, and assent with resent is they are all the same kind of word element. They have they have they have we have a term for that word element. They're not words that we can use by themselves. Okay, so take the meaning of resent. Right, that zent we can't use as a word, but it has to have a prefix before it. What kind of element do we call that? Zent. It's a root. It's a root. You look mystified. All right, we need we need to explain something to you about about roots clearly. Let's, uh, uh, before we do, let's, let's, let's try another example. Let's try provoke. See, what I'm going to claim is that voke is a root in English, but it has a property that, that many roots have. It can only appear in words when there is a prefix or suffix with it. Many roots cannot appear by themselves. All right, a root is a form that is part of a word, but is not the only part. When I talk about a root, I, I mean a word part that has to, has to occur with something else. So with voc, we saw voc in an earlier class in, in vocal. So there it is with the suffix. With provoke and invoke and evoke and so on, there's voc with the prefix. But we don't voke by itself. Voke is, not a, voke is not a word, all right? So there's a difference in English and in language in general between roots and words. Roots are part of words, but a root by itself is not, is not a word, okay? 
So what, what, what's, what the forms on this slide show us is that the prefix re and the prefix pro have an interesting property. They can attach to roots or they can attach to full words. And that's, that's why we get this, uh, this array of forms that, that we have. In, in chapter four, we talk about idiosyncratic allomorphy. Um, I don't have too much to add to what's in the text, and we need to move on to phonetics tonight. But I did want to say a, a couple of things. Um, and what, and what, what I'm going to uh, say will help us understand funny things like, um, as, uh, as one of you just pointed out to me, we have the adjective inept in English, but we don't have the, the, the word ept. And, and why, why is that? Uh, it's, it, the reason has to do with uh, vowel changes that are part of idiosyncratic allomorphy in the language. There are two, two uh, major changes that I'll just summarize today. One is an oblaut pattern where the vowel e gets changed to O and is sometimes dropped completely. This pattern goes back thousands of years in time to the Indo-European mother language. Um, it's, it survives in words that we borrowed from Latin and Greek because Latin and Greek were descendant languages of the Indo-European Indo mother language. They both exhibited this, this kind of pattern. In the first set of forms, which we get from Latin, men and mon are on your, uh, on your word element list as meaning think. We see the allomorph men in words like mental, and we see mon in uh, forms like monitor and admonish. But despite their, their difference, they really are allomorphs of the same morpheme. It's just that uh, in, uh, they come from words that in Indo-European underwent a shift from, from the, uh, the letter E to the letter O sometimes. The, our root for cut comes from Greek and exhibits another oblate pattern. Uh, the tom, the, uh, the vowel of the root, is sometimes lost entirely. And actually, in, uh, in, in English words, the only example I found of TM being an instance of the morphing cut is the one word tmesis, which is probably not a word you use every day. Uh, do you know what tmesis is? Frankly, I had to look it up. Uh, uh, if, you, if you're an English major or work in an English department, maybe you have a no, they don't talk about tmesis in English departments. Okay. <laughs> uh, tmesis is, is a cutting that, uh, uh, it's a cutting of words. So if you have, uh, uh, one example that I've seen is if you have a, a word, you can, you can split it up in order to have an effect. So uh, uh, the word chit-chat has two syllables, if you say, uh, what, uh, what did you two do? Well, we did a little chit and a little chat. Okay, <laughs> you kind of cut, cutting up a word in a, in a novel way just for effect. Uh, all right, 
So thesis is, is, is a cutting of a word that shouldn't be cut, but it produces a kind of humorous effect. I, I saw an example once with whatsoever. I thought I could reconstruct it here, but, uh, but I can't. I'll look it up and, and uh, re, re, uh, report on it to you next time. Um, Oh, good. Okay, a whole nother is, is, is great. So another is a single word. You shouldn't be able to do that, and yet, and yet you can. Very good. <clears throat> um, so that's, that's oblot. So be prepared to find roots that come to us from Latin and from Greek where the vowel is not constant. The vowel E will, will uh, change to or alternate with the vowel O and sometimes disappear entirely. Um, the, other, the other pattern is weakening, and this, this is what helps us to explain why we have inept and, uh, and not ept in English. <clears throat> so here's, here's the basic explanation uh, uh, before we look at the, the, the pattern. In Latin, there was an adjective optus that means apt, and then we borrowed into English. When Latin put the prefix on optus to mean not apt, it had to change the vowel to a weaker one. Because in Latin, there was a rule that said that in, in salient positions, a vowel, uh, a, 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 a vowel retained its basic shape. But in less salient cases, uh, in less salient positions in a word, a vowel was weakened. What counts as salient? Well, one thing that makes a vowel salient is it being in the first syllable of a word. The first syllable that you hear will stand out. And there have been results of, of, of studies. People, people uh, have shown that uh, when we remember things, when we remember part of someone's name, you're more likely to remember the first syllable than the second syllable, for example. All right. So the first, first, first syllable is definitely a salient position. So in salient position, apt kept its vowel. But in, second, in the second syllable, it was in a less salient position. The vowel got weakened to an e, and so it, in Latin it became ineptus. We borrowed both adjectives from Latin, but we borrowed them the way Latin pronounced them, apt and inept. And so that, that's why we don't have an adjective, OK? See how sensible our language is. Okay. <clears throat> uh, as, you, as you can see, this pattern of weakening uh, uh, appears in a number of cases, including roots like an m, an n, and apec, apic, and also in prefix, prefixes, so the anti and anti. Are, uh, are instances of the, the same root. <clears throat> By weakening, the, the vowel A weakened to E when it was in a non-salient position. And then in still other weaker positions, that E weakened to I. <clears throat> if, you, if you want to understand why they call this weakening, just consider how we make the sounds. So optus, ah, mouth wide open, ah. Now, if you close it some, you get eh. If the tongue is relatively front in the mouth, you get eh. And if you close the mouth even more and pull the jaw up, so you make eh smaller, it's going to become eh. All right. And this, this really, it really was 
a kind of connection between position in a word or position in a syllable and the strength of a vowel. <clears throat> Take the words apex and apical, both instances of the morpheme apex, which has the L morph apic, and help me understand what it might be about apex and apical, which makes pex more, more salient than pick in apical. So for apex, I'm going to spell this phonetically. I'm going to spell uh, the, the last letter phonetically. A-P-E-K-S. And for apical, I'm going to spell the, the, uh, the letter before the final syllable phonetically. It's, it's pronounced as a K, so apical. Help me understand why the vowel E in apex is in a more salient position, in a stronger position, than the vowel I in apical. Dallas. The K sound kind of extend beyond just the K. Yeah, yeah. So after the K sound, you've got you've got a consonant in the same syllable, apex. Now that syllable, that syllable begins with a P. It has the vowel, and it's got two consonants at the end of it. That's one syllable, apex, pex. All right. In apical, pronounce apical in syllables. A P call. There, the the vowel the vowel corresponding to the uh, apex is at the end of the syllable. It has no consonants after it, and so uh, as a result, it's kind of exposed. It's exposed to influences from other sounds. It's exposed to reduction, and uh, because it's not stressed, and so uh, it, it gets weakened further. All right. In, in, in Latin, this, this, uh, this um, pattern that we see, in a heavy syllable, apex has, uh, has, has an E. In a lighter syllable, where uh, the, the vowel is at the end, uh, at the end of the syllable, uh, it's in a weaker position. In Latin, uh, the, the, the really, you could really see the difference in position. Unfortunately, when we, when we borrowed these words from, from, from Latin, we sort of lost part of the, we, we lost parts of the Latin words that made this, uh, this factor of being in, in, a, in a salient environment or in a heavy environment versus being in a lighter or less salient environment. Uh, when we borrowed the words from Latin, it obscured the, uh, these facts about strong versus weak positions. And so what we're left with in English is simply, well, sometimes there's an A sound, sometimes there's an E sound, sometimes there's an I sound. You can, you can, you can, um, you can see some, to some extent, uh, survivals of the old Latin changes. So in perennial, we get an E, but in annual, we get the A. So when, when, when annual has stress and it's in the first syllable, it's not weakened. But as soon as we put a prefix after uh, a prefix before it, uh, we're, we're getting weakening. So to some extent, that uh, that conditioning in Latin survives in modern day English, but a lot of it has been lost. 
at any rate, that's one of the uh, one of the uh, the patterns of of uh, vowel changes that we'll see in many many roots. And one more slide of other roots in uh, in your uh, current element set that uh, uh, that that show this this change. All right. Now we want we want to talk about phonetics. Let's see uh, let's see if we can uh, run through the phonetics of English consonants today. Uh, in, in order to do this, uh, let, let me def defer the discussion of why, why we should uh, care about this and, and just do it today. And uh, next, next week, we'll, we'll ask now, does this have any value to us? But here's here's a, a, a representation of the human vocal tract that, uh, that I took from the textbook where we have uh, different articulators with, uh, with different numbers. And corresponding to the, uh, the different articulators, we have uh, terminology. So the uh, position one that involves the two lips, sounds that are articulated in that position are called labial and, and so on. Let me, let me explain uh, 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 something basic about how we produce speech sounds. Every speech sound that, that we make, whether it's a consonant or a vowel, involves uh, uh, pushing out air that originates with, with our lungs, uh, pushing air out so that, it comes, that the air comes through the mouth or through the nose or both. And what all of the different terminology that uh, we're dealing with here uh, refers to is ways of modifying the passage of air as it moves from the lungs through the vocal tract. The voice of modifying, we can stop the flow of air and then let, let it go. We can slow down the flow of air, or we can just, uh, just, just let it go. Here are the different, different ways that we can modify uh, the flow. It, uh, let's, take, um, let's take the lips, for example. <clears throat> let's say we've got the, the sound ah, and I want to stop the flow of air that comes with ah, with using my lips. How will I do that? I put them together and I don't open them. And then finally, to let the sound out, I open the lips and I get ba, something like ba, all right? That kind of, that kind of uh, consonant in which we stop the flow of air, that's called a stop consonant. <clears throat> we can stop the flow of air at the lips and we'll get a labial stop. That's number one. At, uh, at position number two, so between the teeth, it's, uh, it's possible to put the teeth together and if you have your tongue in the right place to stop the flow of air. In English, we don't, we don't use the teeth to stop the air, but we do use it to slow down the flow of air. So put your, uh, put your tongue between your teeth and use that gesture to stop the flow of air. You have something like v, v, all right? That kind of sound is called a dental sound. Moving on, uh, there's, uh, uh, in position number three, feel with the tip of your tongue uh, the ridge behind the upper teeth. Behind the upper teeth, if you move the tip of your tongue back, 
there will be a sudden, uh, a sudden part where all of a sudden from position three, you're going, it feels almost straight up to number four. There's kind of a sharp ascent to position number four. The ridge at which that begins to happen is called the alveolar ridge. And we can use the tip of the tongue to stop the flow of air by just putting it against the alveolar ridge. So let's try and do that. Take the tip of the tongue, put it behind the alveolar ridge. Everybody do this with me so I'm not the only one making the sound. Ta! 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 All right. Um, if you move back from the alveolar ridge, you'll come to what we're used to calling the roof of the mouth, but linguists call the palate. And uh, the, the palate, you can feel, at the roof of your mouth is, is hard and bony. We don't, um, uh, we don't use the palate for, for consonant sounds, but sounds like uh, the sound y, y, the y sound, are articulated there. They're articulated there by moving the tongue, uh, the part of the tongue that you see around position eight, moving it straight, uh, straight up towards the roof of the mouth, but not, not making a closure. We don't close off the flow of air. We simply uh, slow it down somewhat. The next position with the, uh, 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 in the articulation of constant is position number five, which involves the velum. Okay, the velum is, uh, is the back part of the, the palate. Again, you can, you, can, you can feel that if you move the back of, of your tongue straight up and towards the back of the roof of your mouth. And if, if you do that and you have the back of the tongue touching the velum, you will come out with a sound, something like ka, ka, or ga, ga, ka, ga. All right, you can see how, how far back the tongue uh, the tongue is for that. So that class of consonants is called velar sounds. <clears throat> okay, the uvula, uh, you, uh, uh, for this we should all have, have mirrors. If you open wide, you, uh, you may be able to see your uvula dangling in, in the very back. And this is the, this is the part of, the, uh, of the, the vocal tract that vibrates when you make uh, when you gargle, okay, so okay, the the, uh, the the sound of the French uh, French R, ra ra ra, is is uvular. Um, I need to drink water at this point. I, I have a very dry mouth, and so uh, my uvula isn't vibrating very much, but ra ra. Okay. The um, the six. Terms that we, uh, the first six terms that we see here describe where in the vocal tract uh, a stoppage of the airflow or a constriction of the airflow can be made in order to stop or slow down the, uh, the uh, in order to articulate a, a, a consonant. The remaining terms, apical, laminal, dorsal, glottal, and nasal now, you, uh, apical, and laminal refer to what part of the front of the tongue is, uh, is, is moving in a sound. Uh, 
We've, we referred to the tip of the tongue in, in discussing uh, a couple of the sounds. Tip of the t uh, uh, if the tip of the tongue is used, that sound is called apical. If, uh, if, the, if the part of the tongue that is just behind the tip, so it's still, still very pliable, it's still very much in the front of the tongue, but it's, it's behind the very tip of the tongue, that part of the tongue, tongue is, uh, is used for laminal sounds. Number nine in the picture shows the back of the, uh, the, the tongue, and this is the one that we use for velar sounds, and that's called the dorsal region. <clears throat> Two more terms. Down here, where the vocal cords are, that's called the glottal region. The glottal region is where uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, vocal cords can open and close. And then finally, um, we have nasal sounds. Nasal sounds are made by opening up the chamber that's called the nasopharynx so that air can pass from down here up through the, uh, the nasopharynx and, and uh, into the nose. If I want to make, make a stop consonant like the B of ba, I'm going to close my lips. Now, everybody do that. Just feel, feel yourself making, making the gesture for the B of ba, ba, ba. Make, make it, say it, and just feel where you're articulating. Ba. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Um, pronounce the sound M of ma, ma. I hear the difference, but when I look at you, I can't tell because you're putting your lips together. It's almost as if you're making a B for the same sound. What are you doing so differently for ma that you're not doing for ba that is causing the, the, uh, this, this different sound? Good. So how, how, does, how, does, how does the air come through the nose? You are. There's the, 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 uh, this is, is around number six here. It's it's really a valve. The velum can can be positioned the way it is in in the in the chart that you see in the slide, so that air can pass at the same time between the uh, it can pass at the same time through the mouth and through the nose. But you can also close this valve so air goes only through the nose. You can also close this valve so air goes only through the mouth. All three positions are, are possible. Now let's figure out which position you use for which sound. All right. Say uh, 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 it, uh, if, uh, if I wanted if I wanted to, uh, uh, to produce a stop consonant with the, with, uh, with, with the velum in, in this position, so there's an opening that sends air through the mouth and through the nose, try to produce a stop consonant that way. So that air, while you're producing the ba, the b of ba, air is coming through your nose. The only way, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't work. The only way that you can produce a stop consonant 
is to stop the flow of air so that it does not go through the nose at all, at all. All right. So to articulate a, a B sound, you have uh, the velum uh, pushed against the, the back of the nasopharynx. So there's an opening to the mouth and closing the nose. Now suppose you want to produce an M, like ma. What do you do? Well, you do the opposite. You close off. Uh, 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 well, you've already you've already closed off the the uh, the oral tract by closing your lips. So you can leave you can leave the 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 way it's shown in the slide, and air will naturally just flow through the nose. It can't flow through the mouth because your lips are closed. All right. So we call the the B of ba an oral stop. We call the M of ma a nasal consonant. And some people call it a nasal stop because the flow of air, the oral flow of air, is stopped by that. So a nasal or a nasal stop is what, what that's called. Mm. Now let's look at the kinds of consonant articulations that, that we can have. And I think, uh, uh, I think, I think we'll, uh, uh, we'll stop once we've seen the different kinds. Stops involve totally blocking the flow of air through the mouth, through the mouth. Fricatives involve constricting the flow of air. So when I make the sound th, th, I'm not stopping the flow at any point, but I'm slowing it down. That kind of sound is called a fricative. And, and we'll see, one of the reasons for making this distinction is that uh, fricatives and stops obey different rules in, in language. Let's, uh, let's, let's experiment around with different positions to see what the possible stops are in English. So along with the labial stops, P and B, Let's see what, what other kinds of stop consonants our articulators will, will produce, all right? So take the tip of the tongue, move it behind the alveolar ridge, and we have a sound that you already produced, ta, da. So those, those are stops that are produced in the alveolar region. Labial stops, alveolar stops. Take the, the, uh, the back of the tongue, the, the dorsum of the tongue, and move it up uh, so that it's in contact with the velum, and you get ka, ga. Those are the stop consonants of English. I've written P and B together because they're both made with the lips, T and D together because they're both made in the alveolar region, and K and G together because they're both pronounced in the velar region. What's the difference in pronunciation between uh, each member of those pairs? Voicing. Voicing. Exactly. So P, T, and K are produced without any vibration of the vocal cords. And the only difference between P and B is, a main difference, is that B is accompanied by voicing, the regular vibration of the vocal cords. Um, to feel that is very easy. You can, you can simply touch your larynx, put your fingers on your larynx, 
And when you're voicing a sound, it will be vibrating. And when, when you're not voicing a sound, it won't be. So if you take the P of pa, you feel movement there, but there's no vibration. Now say ba, ba, ba. And the, voice, the, the voicing is automatic. Ba. The vibration is, is, is there. Can you feel it? Another, another way that you can do is to put your, your fingers on your ears. And when you say a voiceless sound, like okay, nothing has ba, ba, ba. Your whole head, head is vibrating because your, your larynx is vibrating. It's part, part of a closed system, and you're getting, uh, you're getting those vibrations. So the presence and absence of voicing is, is uh, what d distinguishes the, the second line of stop constants from the first line. With fricatives, what do we have? Um, well, fricatives involve uh, uh, constricting the flow of air so that it, it passes, but not, uh, uh, not swiftly, we can have f and v. Help me, help me describe the articulation of f and v by making the sounds and telling me what articulators are involved. F, fa. Yeah. So upper teeth and lower lips, they're in contact, and yet there's enough space there that's open that the, that the air can pass through. So these are not stops. They're fricatives. They're called fricatives because of frication. Uh, it's related to the, the word friction. All right. The next, uh, the next sounds down the line that are fricatives are th, the sound of thin, and th. And ev is written this way. You make a sort of a D, and then you put a line through it. And that's the sound of the, or then. Mm. Again, these, these are the fricatives that are made by putting the tongue in between the teeth, more or less. The next, the next sounds in the sequence that are fricatives involve uh, the, the, uh, the tip or blade of the tongue and the alveolar ridge. We already use these articulators for T and D. So let's, let's make a fricative by starting with, say, a T sound, and instead of a stop closure, let's, let's just move the tip, uh, let's, let's retract the tip a little so that air can pass through, but not very quickly. So take ta, 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 and now make the T into a fricative, by releasing the closure a little bit. You get an S. Are you getting that? Okay, the S is really related to a T. An S is like a T, but without the complete closure. If you want voicing, okay, start with a D sound. Start with a D articulation, but don't let the don't don't let there be a closure. And you get all right. <clears throat> English has one more fricative, which I'll uh, write out here, and this this is made by making an S-type gesture, but a little further back, so that 
uh, something like the area between three and four is where the blade of the tongue goes. And you get the sound, which, uh, which we symbolize this way. It's, it's with a, uh, an S that has a long tail. So this is the sound of shin, sure. And the voice version of that, okay, just say shh, and now accompany it with voicing, zh. It's a Z with a long tail, zh, the sound uh, in the middle of pleasure, at the end of garage, and so on. <clears throat> the next class of sounds is the affricate. Affricates are simple in English. They're just combinations of the stop. T and D plus a fricative. So uh, the, uh, the voiceless affricate is ch, as in church, the beginning and ending sound of church. And uh, I'm sorry for writing behind the, uh, the, the let, let, let me write, write it here. T followed by the, uh, the sh, so ch gives us the first sound of church or the last sound of church, and the voice version of that just voice ch, and you get j, the first and last sound of judge. Um, that's affricates. What else do we have? We've got um, liquids, glides, and nasals. Uh, liquids are uh, articulated basically in the alveolar region. And the, the liquids are so related in their place of articulation to T and D. The liquids are L and R. L, R. Uh, glides in English. These are these are very vowel-like sounds. The glides of English are the glide Y, the glide of yes, which linguists write with the J sound. That's terrible, isn't it? But we, uh, the International Phonetics Association tells us to write J for the glide Y. And then there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, the glide W of wo or woo, wo, woo. Help me to describe the articulation of that glide. We call them, we call them glides. They're not stops or fricatives because uh, the, the airflow is considerable for those. We're, we're not stopping the airflow. We're not even constricting it very much. The articulators are relatively open, but but where where do we do something with the articulators for whoa woo woo? So yes, we have a bilabial gesture, and yet that's not enough. If I say whoa 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 whoa, in order to get the 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 the, uh, the sound of whoa, I have to do something with my velum. Can you feel any movement of the back of your tongue? What can you, what can you feel? I just feel it pushing back and, and opening. Yes. The back of the tongue is, 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 is moving back and up. You're getting a, a velar articulation along with the labial articulation. And in fact, W is called a, a labial velar sound. Uh, one other glide is a glottal, a glottal glide, H. The sound H 
it uh, involves some uh, 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 some some work with the glottis, which uh, which we won't. Uh, H doesn't really interact with other consonants very much. H is very vowel-like, and we won't have much to say about its articulation here. Uh, with the nasal, this is a good place to stop. I see it's a good time to stop. With the nasal, nasals, we said, are made with a stop gesture only. You've opened the nasal passage, passage up so the air won't be blocked behind the oral closure. The air will pass through the nose. So all we have to do for nasals is we have to look at the corresponding stop and move the valve so the air will flow through the nose. If I have the uh, labial closure of P and B, and change it to a nasal consonant, we saw I'm going to get an M. Take a D now, da, 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 and now open up the nasal passage. What, what sound comes out? From da, na, na. So that's an alveolar. Uh, M is a bilabial nasal, N is an alveolar nasal. Let's do it with a K and G. So take a G sound, g, g. Now let, it, let the air flow nasally. Nah, 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 nah. It sounds funny, but that's the very sound that we have at the, at the, at the, ending, at the end of the ending, ing, or rang, bang, nah, nah. All right. It's really just a nasalized version of the stop G. And so we have a symbol, which I'll write in the right place in the chart, I'll also write over here so that you can see it if you're on the other side of the room. It's an N with a tail. All right. Those really are they're pretty much the constants of English. We, uh, we have to talk a bit about the vowels. There are fewer vowels. It's simple to talk, simpler to talk about, but leave that, uh, let's leave that for next time. Next time, um, we'll talk about um, regular allomorphy in English. These are rules that help us take apart most of the words that, that we encounter in the course. And so starting next time, uh, we'll, we'll be devoting more class time than before to analyzing lots of words into, uh, into their constituent morphemes. Please take a look at uh, chapter 6 um, and, and, and do a couple of the exercises. It, uh, uh, it, uh, it, sh it should be fun. All right, good, thanks. If we had time, we'd talk about uh, Neanderthal language. It's, uh, uh, a recent article, people did a, a kind of uh, a computerized modeling, of knowing, knowing the anatomy of Neanderthal to, to see what a Neanderthal uh, person would sound like if they spoke. And they, they found that they, they couldn't, uh, in fact, produce things that were like human speech sounds, but with a, a much more limited range. <laughs>